If you're a believer, you have a gift, and Christ gave you that gift to use, and he gave you that gift to use in his church. Christ only promised to build one organization, one institution. It's the church. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom begins a new 12-part series titled The Church According to Jesus. So what comes to mind when you think about church? Well, depending on where you live, it could be many things. But not every congregation may be the church according to Jesus. The Apostle Paul makes the case that God has reconciled his redeemed children to himself and to each other through Jesus Christ. It follows then that believers must be diligent to preserve unity. It's that theme of true unity that Tom will focus on in today's program, examining how believers are meant to pursue and preserve this true unity. And along the way, you'll discover your own responsibility. But Tom, before we begin, why is the church so very important to the Lord? If you really want to understand how intimately connected Christ is with his church, then you just have to remind yourself of two metaphors that the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians 5. He tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. And he tells us that the church is like the body of Jesus Christ. It's impossible when you think about those two pictures to think about anything that's more closely, intimately connected to his heart than the church. It was because of the church that he came into the world in order to redeem his people for himself. It's because of the church that he gave us the, the word of God and the spirit of God. It's because of the church that he's ascended into heaven and is preparing to come again. And it's for the church that he will eventually come. And so... Nothing could be more important to our Lord Jesus Christ than his church. And what we're going to learn is that should be true for us who are his followers as well. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher on The Word Unleashed. I invite you to turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 4. And we're looking at the paragraph that begins in verse 2 and runs all the way down through verse 16. Now, the second half of Ephesians tells us that we are to walk worthy of our calling. And the very first way we can walk worthy is to walk in unity in this church, in the church that God has created. That's the theme of the paragraph. If God has reconciled us to himself and to each other, as we learned back in the first half of the book, then we must be diligent to preserve that real unity that the Holy Spirit created when he brought us to himself. In verses 2 through 16, Paul provides us with three means for preserving that unity among the people of God. Three means. We've looked at the first two and begun to look at the third. The first one is put on the attitudes of unity. There are certain mindsets, certain attitudes you find in verse 2 that encourage, that breed unity. Secondly, focus on the basis of our unity. Don't get caught up in trivialities. Focus on those bedrock doctrinal issues that bring us together as the people of God. And those are in verses 4 through 6. 
The third means for preserving this unity that is created by the Spirit is work on Christ's plan for unity. And that's beginning in verse 7 and running all the way down through verse 16. Work on Christ's plan for unity. Now, so we don't get lost as we look at verses 7 through 16 because they're very complex, let me give you the outline ahead of time under this third point, work on Christ's plan for unity, so that you have sort of a roadmap. In verses 8 through 10, there is the biblical defense of Christ's plan. In verse 7 and verses 11 and 12, you find the five parts of the plan. In verse 13, the ultimate goal of the plan And in verses 14 through 16, the practical application of the plan. What do you do with this plan Christ has created? So there's the biblical defense of the plan, the five parts of Christ's plan, the ultimate goal of his plan, and the practical application of the plan. We're going to look at each of those as we flow through this text, all pursuing this plan in order to breed unity. The key point of this entire section is that Christ has a plan for his church. And if we will work on living out that plan, it will preserve the spirit of unity that God himself has created among us. Paul's point, as we saw, is that Jesus has the right. He has the right to create unity, to insist on unity, the right to distribute gifts to us, the right to distribute gifted men to the whole church, the right to rule his church. He has the right, and he has the right because he purchased it at the cross by a crushing defeat of his enemies. And then, like the ancient triumph march of victorious general, Jesus, as it were, ascended into heaven, leading all of his enemies defeated behind him, and he gave gifts to his own from the spoil as a celebration of his victory. Now, before we move on to Paul's next point here, there's one loose end I want to tie up under under verses 8 through 10 and the biblical defense of the plan. I ran out of time last week. I actually had this in my notes. It's a question a lot of people have about this passage that's kind of an aside, but it's important for you to understand. Throughout the history of the church, many have taken the phrase, notice in verse Nine, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Many have taken that phrase to mean, and they've compared it with 1 Peter 3, and come to the conclusion that Jesus actually descended into hell after his death. Perhaps you've heard that taught. Turn over to 1 Peter for just a moment. Let me deal with this. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is where the other passage that's used, together with the one in Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the, spirit, in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which, that is, in the Spirit, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So what's going on here? Well, Some would say that you take these two verses together, he descended in the lower parts of the earth, and he went and made proclamation of the spirits now in prison. You put those together, and it must mean that Jesus descended into hell between his death and his resurrection. This this phrase even occurs in what we call the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell, it says. 
Although not everybody who believes and embraces the Apostles' Creed would believe that Jesus actually went into hell, some, like John Calvin, for example, would interpret that simply to mean that on the cross, Jesus suffered the pains of hell, as it were, as he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. But there are some who believe that Jesus actually went to hell in that intervening period. Is that what happened? Folks, I challenge you to read these two verses carefully, study them carefully, and you will see that neither of these verses says anything about Jesus going to hell. Ephesians 4.9 simply says he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Could mean the grave or... The best understanding of the lower parts of the earth is that it simply refers to the earth itself. He descended from heaven so far down that he came to earth. And I showed you that it's used that way even in the Old Testament. So Christ descended to the earth. That's all Ephesians 4 means. And then he ascended back into heaven. But what about this passage in 1 Peter 3? What does this mean? Well, look at verse 19. In the Spirit... He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And they're the spirits who once were disobedient when the patience of God was waiting in the days of Noah. Now, this is a very complicated Greek sentence, but let me give you the best interpretation and the simplest way to understand this. It simply says this, in the spirit, not physically, but in the spirit, Jesus preached in the days of Noah through Noah while the ark was being constructed, and those who heard that message of Jesus in the Spirit through Noah to repent and rejected that message are the spirits who are now in prison, that is, in hell. So, the simplest way to understand this passage, and certainly Ephesians 4, is that Jesus never went to hell. You say, well, what happened to Jesus between his death and resurrection? Well, this is another sermon for another time, but let me just give it to you very briefly. His body went in the grave. That's clear. His human body went in the grave, stayed there in that tomb for that period of time. His human soul went into the presence of God. You remember what the very last thing Jesus said on the cross was? Father, into your hands I what? Commit my spirit. Jesus' human soul ascended as your human soul will if you're in Christ into the presence of God at the moment of death. Jesus' deity during that period of time, remember he was also fully divine, continued to fill all the universe as it always had and always will. And even during his earthly ministry, the deity of Christ filled the universe. He was everywhere even as God So, Jesus died and was buried. After 40 days, he ascended bodily into heaven. This is Paul's point in Ephesians 4. He ascended bodily into heaven, and as he ascended, it's like he ascended as a victorious general with all of the enemies he had defeated behind him, not necessarily literally, but figuratively. That's the picture we're to get. He marches into heaven, having routed his enemies, and as he comes in, he gives gifts to those who are his rightful subjects, and we're the ones who receive those gifts. Now, that's the biblical defense of the plan. Christ has a right. Today, we come to the heart of the plan itself. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. 
Christ has a right to create this plan, but what is the plan? Well, today we come to the five parts of Christ's plan. The five parts of Christ's plan. What is Christ's plan for how his church, how this church should function? Perhaps no passage in all the scriptures sets that forth more clearly than Ephesians chapter four and the three verses we're gonna begin to examine today. Ephesians chapter four, verse seven. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. There is Christ's plan for the church, and it's spelled out in those brief words, and Christ's plan has five distinct parts. This week and next, we're going to look at each of those five parts together. But this morning, we're just going to look at the first, because this is at the heart of the plan, and it's so important to understand this. The first part of Christ's plan for the church is this, Christ distributes spiritual gifts to his church. Christ distributes spiritual gifts to his church. Look at verse seven. Verse seven begins with a contrast, but, or on the other hand. You see, Paul began this chapter by calling for spiritual unity. And then in verses four through six, he launched into one of his most eloquent statements about the unity that we enjoy. But in verse seven, he says, but, or on the other hand, to each one of us individually, grace was given. Paul's point is that for any church to be healthy, there must be the kind of unity that's described in verses four through six, and there must be the kind of diversity that's described in verse seven. And the diversity comes from this. Christ has given every believer a unique gift. If you belong to Christ, listen carefully, if you are a Christian, he has given you a unique and specific gift to enable you to serve in his church. That's the first level of the plan. You, Christian, have a specific gift given to you by God but what exactly is the gift, and how did you get it, and why did you get it? Well, those are the issues that this passage and several others in the New Testament explain, and I want to look at it together this morning. You're going to hear some things that are familiar because from time to time we have touched on these themes because they're so basic, so foundational to the life of the church. When I first came here, my first two Sundays at Countryside Bible Church back in 2003, we looked at this passage. So let's look, let's look at Christ distributing these spiritual gifts. What exactly is Christ's gift? Notice verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given. To each one of us, grace was given. Now what does that mean? Well, Paul has used a similar expression earlier in this letter that really helps us understand. Go back to chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, of the gospel, I was made a minister 
according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me, according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. What I want you to see in this passage is that Paul here is not talking about God's grace in salvation. Instead, he's talking about God's grace in equipping him to serve. Look at verse 8 again. Grace was given, what? To preach. Paul says, God gave me grace in order that I could serve him. And notice both in Ephesians 3 and over in Ephesians 4, grace was given. That's passive, the passive voice. The one who gave the gift isn't mentioned. This is what theologians call the divine passive. It's God who gave. God gave us this grace to serve him. It's interesting, in various places throughout the Scripture, all the members of the Trinity are involved in giving us the gifts we have, the Father, the Spirit. But here, Paul is especially emphasizing that Christ gave us these gifts. Notice Verse 8, when he ascended, when Christ ascended to heaven as the victorious warrior, he gave gifts to men. These gifts are the expression of his victory, won at the cross. So putting it all together, Paul, when Paul says that grace was given to each one of us, he means that Christ has given us the grace to serve God in a particular way. The Greek word for grace is Charis. It's related to and very similar to the word that normally refers in the New Testament to spiritual gifts. The Greek word is charisma, or in the plural, charismata. Means literally a grace gift. That's what charisma means a grace gift, a gift that finds its source in the grace of God. It's interesting, in Romans chapter 12, Paul uses charis, grace, and charisma, or literally they are charismata, together, side by side. So this gift from God that we have received is an expression of God's unmerited favor to us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. He gave it to us as an expression of grace. Clearly then, when you look at the evidence, in verse 7 of Ephesians 4, Paul is referring to what we call spiritual gifts. The tense of the Greek verb was given, described something that happened in the past. This was an event that occurred at your conversion. As a result of your salvation, God endowed you with a special gift to serve him, with a spiritual gift, with a charisma, with all of us, with, a, with charismata, the plural. What exactly is a spiritual gift? My favorite definition of spiritual gifts is this. It is a unique capacity for service given to every true Christian that he did not possess before salvation. Let me say that again. Listen carefully. It is a unique capacity for service that is given to every true Christian and that he did not possess before salvation. You see, a spiritual gift is not a natural talent. Your spiritual gift isn't something you were born with. You can exercise a spiritual gift through a natural talent. For example, 
Someone can be naturally gifted as a communicator and also have spiritual gifts that relate to teaching. I fall into that category. I'm told, although I don't remember it by my family, that when I was four and five, I would, I, I have, I'm the youngest of ten, and I'm told that I would sit my siblings down on the couch and have a little stand there, and I would lead them in singing and then preach to them. Uh, so it, it was in my blood from the earliest, but that wasn't my spiritual gift. That was simply a natural speaking ability. When I became a Christian at that moment, God endowed me with the spiritual gift of teaching. Someone may be talented at carpentry, may have learned that as a skill, and they can use that natural skill to exercise the spiritual gifts of helps, helping others. But the spiritual gift is the gift of helps. Carpentry is merely an avenue, a natural skill through which they can exhibit that spiritual gift. Your spiritual gift is not a natural ability. And every one of us, without exception, has received a spiritual gift from Christ given through the work of the Spirit. Notice what verse 7 says. But each one of us. Paul includes himself and all of those who are reading this letter or hearing it read. And all of us who are reading it. No exceptions. But each one of us, every genuine Christian... This is the consistent message of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, the Spirit distributes to each one individually. 1 Peter 4, 10, each one has received a special gift. Romans 12, 3, God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So we each have a gift, but it's not the same gift. Scripture makes it clear that Christ has given every Christian a unique capacity for service in the church. So what are the specific spiritual gifts that you and I can receive? Well, when you look at the Scripture, the spiritual gifts are primarily listed in two passages, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. I encourage you to turn there, not this morning, but to go there at some point and read the lists in those two passages. When you read those two lists, there are then about 18 total spiritual gifts listed in those two lists. Now, when you look at the lists, there are two categories of gifts, and this is very important for you to understand. You look at that 18, those 18 gifts fall into two basic categories. There are the, what we could call the temporary sign gifts, and there are the permanent edifying gifts. Temporary sign gifts and permanent edifying gifts. You say, why do you say some of the gifts are temporary sign gifts? Well, if you read the two lists, you will then see that the apostles practiced some of those things. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul calls some of those signs and miracles and wonders the signs of an apostle, the seal, if you will, of an apostle. You see this even more over in Hebrews. Turn there with me just for a moment. I want you to see that there were certain things specifically given to the apostles and those who traveled with them for the confirmation of their message. And they were temporary. And you see this even in Hebrews chapter 2. Notice verse 3. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the message of the gospel, the message of salvation that we have received. And he says in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? 
after it, that is this message of salvation, was at first spoken through the Lord. So Jesus Christ himself taught and explained the gospel message. That shouldn't surprise us. We read that throughout the four gospels. Then he says that same message was confirmed to us by those who heard. So here you have two more generations. You have the Lord, and then you have those who heard. Those who heard were the apostles, the eyewitnesses, the, the sent ones by Christ to deliver the message. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, The Church According to Jesus. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.